Your time is really your most valuable asset. We've got to control our own energy. That's not something that I read in the news. That's something that I'm hearing from people in this industry. It became very clear that they were telling Saddam what he wanted to hear. We are facilitators of the discovery process. Energy is, is essentially a very political business. It's not being honest with me. It's being honest with yourself. G'day ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Crude Conversations. It's been a while between episodes as I've been feverishly working on my software business, but now that we've launched, uh, I was able to tease out a little bit of time for the podcast. So in this episode, I am joined by Philip Rackerson, who is CEO and co-founder of Energy Funders. He's a really interesting guy, full of energy, and he's on a mission. He and his team at Energy Funders are setting out to give people like you and I the opportunity to invest directly in oil and gas development projects. Now, these would otherwise be the exclusive realm of banks and, and the uber-rich. Uh, a good analogy would be what Angel's List uh, has done in the tech startup investing world, making that available to the masses. Of course, like any investment, there's risk involved, but what I'm excited about is having the opportunity to apply my knowledge of the industry to my personal investments. I should note uh, that I haven't invested in an energy funders project yet, nor am I getting anything out of having Philip on the show, except of course the pleasure and uh, the delight of his company and conversation for about an hour or so. He's a really interesting guy, he's doing inspiring things, so without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Philip Ruckerson. Well, Philip, thanks for joining me on the show. Hi, thanks, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for uh, having me on. I, uh, I want to touch on the, the founding story a little bit and what you guys are, are doing at, at Energy Funders. You, uh, you're, you're really tackling and disrupting the, the investment space in oil and gas, and I'm really, uh, really excited about what you guys are up to. But I want to uh, talk about where the idea came from and what uh, what inspired the idea? So what got you into it? We operate at the intersection of securities law, technology, um, and oil and gas, uh, as as well as all of the uh, laws at the federal level and the state level that govern investments and securities. Um, the the idea arose in March of 2013. Um, I had been successful in uh, entrepreneurship that resided at the intersection of law and technology. And I was looking to bring that to in the sphere of oil and gas. At the same time, I was working with a good friend from law school and a great landman and oil and gas attorney named Roger Gingell. Uh, we were working on a royalty project with a couple of uh, my first cousins who are petroleum engineers and uh, vice president of acquisitions for an oil company. Um, and at the same time, I was really interested in crowdfunding. I loved the concept of crowdfunding, and I began to see it as version 3.0 of the internet. What do you mean by that? 
what is 3.0? Sure. What mean? what I mean is that I think the the very first iteration of the internet. I remember when my brother and I. I think we 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 managed to get on AOL in 1994, and we viewed something called the World Wide Web. Um, that was the that was the first iteration. Static pages, trying to advertise something, making yourself known out there, basically putting your flag in the ground. Okay, the rudimentary type of e-commerce. So one-way consumer of information. Exactly, almost like much like a yellow, like a yellow pages listing, or like an online catalog. Um, Then you had, uh, then you had the the connectivity. You had social media. Uh, That's obviously been huge uh, in terms of driving change across the world and driving action, collective action. and then I think version 3.0 is the, the promise of uh, a, a, the ultimate goal and fulfillment of the fulfillment of the ultimate goal of, of the internet, which is a complete flattening across the world, um, where you have uh, ultimate collaboration, you have uh, collective action coming together, combining that with e-commerce. And thus, you're allowing people opportunities they never had before, which is what we do. Um, and and so, I feel like we're part of we're part of uh, the internet uh, of version 3.0. Um, it's, it's 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 a really exciting time. Um, you know, going back to the origin of the company, um, I was a crowdfunding fanatic at the time. Uh, I had backed all these different projects on Kickstarter and Indiegogo, and I thought this is really exciting. What what they're allowing people to do is to create something um, that never would have been created before. And and I had been seeing that in many cases these products that I was receiving were superior to what was already out there. I thought, well, I wonder if this can be extended into the oil and gas space, and. Um, at the same time, I saw some of the very first equity crowdfunding companies. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, they're broadly speaking, there are two types of crowdfunding, and the second type involves investments, and it's called equity crowdfunding. There were uh, there was a real estate crowdfunding company that had just started, um, and I thought, wait, I wonder if this is, is happening in oil and gas. And so I, I checked in with them. I said, do you have any intention to crowdfund mineral rights or oil and gas? And they said, no, we don't. Uh, we're interested in cash flowing properties and so, and, and, and so forth. And God, you know, somebody should be doing this. Why not us? I called up Roger and talked through the idea with him. And it was as if a light bulb went off in his head and everything he'd been thinking about for the last couple of years uh, just suddenly gelled into the right concept. He had just, I think, been seeking a framework to, to hang it on. And suddenly he saw what it was. And he dashed out like a an excellent business plan. Obviously, we have grown far beyond that now. But that was the that was the kernel of the concept that we began with, and we were just off to the races at that point. Was there someone in your early life that you'd say had a big influence on on you sort of heading into business? I think that uh, <clears throat> I think probably both my father and my uncle. Um, my, my father is an attorney. He practices uh, real estate law. Um, he, has, uh, he has some well-known uh, restaurateurs as clients. Uh, he does banking law, and he does, he does a variety of uh, a law related to those areas, oil and gas law as well. Um, 
and he built his business from the ground up. You know, he was, you know, an entrepreneur in more of a professional sense. He's built his law practice from the ground up. Um, and I saw how hard he worked, and I also admired what he had built, you know, from the, you know, essentially the sweat of his own back and, and his willingness to work very hard, you know, and, and do so much on his own. Um, and so that influenced me a lot. And then at the same time, you know, I, I grew up with, um, you know, first cousins that were like brothers to me. They grew up a mile down the road. My, my early, from my earliest memories, I, I knew them, you know. Um, they're the uh, sons of my uh, mom's sister, and they're very close. So uh, I, of course, knew, knew their father. God knew their father the whole time, and he was a successful petroleum engineer. I admired how he had weathered uh, a variety of times in oil and gas dating back from, you know, really the 70s. Um, and he had built a successful business from the ground up. Uh, and I was always fascinated by oil and gas and business. And I followed my father's footsteps through law school. Um, and, and, I, and I really came to enjoy the practice of law, but I really also came to enjoy helping businesses uh, in a variety of contexts. Um, and I think you know, all of that has essentially, that passion has combined into, this, into my work with uh, energy funders now. Let's talk about entrepreneurship for a minute, um, because Energy Fund is, isn't your first uh, first business. What at, at what point did you decide that you wanted to be doing your own thing? Is this something that was around in high school, or did you develop it later on in, in college, or, or or maybe even earlier on? I think it just came out of a desire to want to create something that didn't exist before and do it in a way that hadn't been done before. It, it's, it's hard to say, you know, what really, how does it happen, you know? I think you, maybe you see an opportunity or an idea that really you become passionate about and you think, if only I could implement that idea somehow in the real world, you know, what would that look like? You know, what would you, how would you turn that into a business? How would you use that to help people? How would you provide them with a better experience? How would that, you know, turn into a, an organic, you know, cash flowing concept? And, uh, you know, all of that sort of combined into one of my first entrepreneurial experiences. Can you tell us about that one? Sure, what? sure. So, uh, so one of my first entrepreneurial experiences was uh, having a, company that served, and I'm going to try to be uh, short on the legalese here, but it was basically... That's good because most of the listeners are uh, right. not lawyers, I don't think. <laughs> in, in short, the technical term is that it was a key TAM relator uh, uh, acting basically as a private attorney general for the United States. Um, what it did is, is using a special algorithm that I had developed, um, it identified and then enforced um, uh, really you know, serious uh, violations of a law that had been on the books for 120 years. And I worked with one of my good friends from childhood on it and, and some, of, uh, some of his colleagues as well. And it was very, very successful. And the only reason it isn't operating today is because the companies that were breaking the laws, um, that, well, their lobbyists were successful in inserting a rider into the America Advents Act that 
fundamentally change the law in a way that the business, uh, the business model was no longer viable. So when you were setting out to, uh, to start that business, what, this, is, this being your first um, significant entrepreneurial endeavor, what sort of fears did you have at that time? What, what was going through your head? Because um, this, is, this is a very selfish question because I have many of those kind of things going through my head being in, in my first significant entrepreneurial endeavor at the moment. Sure. Um, well, you know, you always think, you know, what if you fail? You know, what, what happens then? You know, you don't want to feel the disappointment of failure. Also, conversely, what if we're able to, to take advantage of the opportunity that's here, but we, we aren't able to take full advantage because we've done, we've made mistakes in the beginning that limited the ultimate success we could achieve. You know, so it's kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, but I think that, you know, all of that goes away once you just start to become successful and you don't really know how to do it exactly that's why entrepreneurship is just the really just a fantastic engaging experiment in trial and error you know what i've learned through formal education in business and, and in the real world working with so many business clients um, and just through my passion itself for business is that uh, all business is about taking risks, calculated risks. It's also about de-risking each move you make uh, to the maximum extent possible. However, um, you're always dealing with the, 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 time, the time value of money and an opportunity cost, as well as all the other market forces. So your time is really your most valuable asset. So you have to, you have to be able to draw the line somewhere and say, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to de-risk this next choice I'm going to make that is inherently risky. But I realize I have limited time. And you have to just, at some point, you have to take the leap. There are lots of leaps of faith that you just make. You just, you just have to take them. And then you just work so hard and you just refuse to give up and you will be successful. You know, if, that is, if you never, ever, ever, ever give up, as Winston Churchill says, you will be successful. You know? <laughs> He's been a, a topic of discussion in past podcasts as oh, well. Really? I'm a big fan of Winston <laughs> Churchill, um, particularly the fact that he was he was sitting there in Parliament talking about how Germany was uh, was warmongering and everyone was telling him he was being a warmonger. And well, turns out he was the only one that was right on that one. And uh, so he stuck to his guns and he uh, he didn't doubt himself and he just kept. Kept pushing forward. There's 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 something timeless about his advice. There know, is that, uh, that I think people like to like to use uh, inspirationally. Absolutely. So talking about downsides, I mean, did you was there a process you applied to sort of going through these downsides and putting in place mitigations? Was it a conscious process you applied, or uh, did you kind of fall into it? I think it. Yeah, I think you. Um, I've always believed that you should you should use um, concentrated you know, study and observation to uh, determine the best way to proceed. Um, and, and what that really means in entrepreneurship is to avoid making mistakes that others have made. Um, the great thing about having so much information available at our fingertips, as, as well as great people to talk to about this, uh, is that. You can you can engage in incredible research projects and study, you know, 
almost every business that has, has come before. You can also look at people who are doing things that may be somewhat analogous, not exactly, especially when you're creating something very new uh, that hasn't been done before, but there's always some example of, of someone or some company has done something that is, is similar enough to give you an idea of what pitfalls to avoid and how to proceed. Um, you know, that's what a lot of entrepreneurship really is, is, uh, is, to, is try, is taking, you know, best advantage of the resources that you might have available. And then, and also figuring out what the best resources you can access are. I think it goes beyond just entrepreneurship too. Really, you can apply those principles to life in general. Oh, um, sure. I mean, you know, following a career in a big company, then the, the same principles apply. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you were in a large company, you'd, you'd do the same thing. You'd want to get to know the right people. You know, you'd want to, you want to see how, if you wanted to be where they were, you know, in, in 10, 15, 20 years, you'd want to know how they got there. Absolutely. So, so thinking through uh, starting a business, if you, if you were to put yourself in the shoes of uh, somebody sitting in a, in a cubicle uh, or an office at a, at a big company who, who's not happy and, and wants to go out and start their own business, what do you think are the most important traits that, that someone needs to be successful in business? Hmm. I think they have to, number one, they have to be willing to take risks. There's just no question about it. Everything they will do is some form of taking a risk. I but think that they, fear can be paralyzing. If you focus, focus on those risks and you think, how do you overcome that fear? Well, that that's a... That's a good question. I think also what they need is they need to be optimistic. Um, you have to, sometimes you have to force yourself to be optimistic so that you can, you have to suspend the, the disbelief that you might, that you might fail. Um, because what is failure in entrepreneurship really? I think failure is when, is when something doesn't work out, whatever it is, and you just give up. You know, um, there's a culture in Silicon Valley that says, you know, fail often and fail fast mm -hmm. and you know, pick yourself back up. It, there's a lot of truth to that because what, what does a failure, you don't even know what a failure looks like until you've already been successful because every single thing that you do that isn't ultimately very successful is, is just another step towards your potential success. Um, and so you really, you also have to have, I mean, it, along with that optimism, you just have to have kind of a, a, just a faith that, that it's all going to work out that, you know, uh, millions of years of evolution in shaping, you know, uh, our, our human consciousness in shaping what we desire, um, in giving us the intellectual and physical and social tools to build the society we have today, that we must have been programmed to do something, to have a desire and be able to manifest something that's greater than ourselves and what we see today. We have the, we're blessed with the amazing ability to see things in our mind and then manifest them into the real world. The fact that we have that ability means we were meant to be able to do that. And so if you are meant to be able to do that, then you surely must be able to make that happen in the real world. But it's not easy, it's very challenging. We're also blessed with the ability to 
overcome great challenges. And I think the fact that you already have all that in your DNA means that you have everything you need. You just have to be prepared to work very hard and to be resilient and, and just keep moving forward. Is there any other specific advice you can think of you'd give someone who is a, about to embark on their first entrepreneurial endeavor? Yeah, I think don't take... Uh, don't take you know lack of success uh, uh, too hard. You know, um, even you know, just thinking of energy funders here. You know, there have uh, uh, there there were several things along the way when I thought, you know, does this mean that this won't work? You know, you when you have in in in, in every in every uh, instance now I know that it meant no, it didn't mean it wouldn't work. Um, so when you are st when you're starting a new company. Um, or, or a new entrepreneurial endeavor, you know, you have this existential threat. You know, if you're working for a large company, you never wonder if you'll wake up tomorrow and it won't exist any longer. With an entrepreneurial endeavor, you wonder, you wake up tomorrow, you know, is, will there be a reason for it to no longer exist? Or will it, will it simply also cease to exist because, you know, the, its reason for existence has been, has been negated? Or, uh, um, you know, maybe there, there are other risks as well. Um, you have to, you, again, you just have to sort of, you have to have this unshakable faith that there is a reason for it to exist. Maybe not in its current form, but maybe in a form where you've pivoted somewhat and you've you know, realized a, a new concept that, that has a lot more reason to exist. I hope that's not too esoteric. <laughs> no, not at all. No, it's, I'm, I'm sitting back digesting it all and thinking. I think, you know what, the, the question of fear, it, it's a really useful exercise to sort of go through that, that fear, talk about it, talk about that worst case scenario and say, what is it? What defines failure? And, mm -hmm. and what would it look like? So then you can go through it in your head. I know everyone says you've got to focus on the positive, but being able to visualize failure and show that it's not that bad. Like in, in my own case, mm -hmm. if, if nobody buys the software that we're building, I'll go back and be a reservoir engineer like I was before. And you know what? That's not a, not a bad living. <laughs> um, so it's really not that bad of a situation. It, it, exactly. will, it will dent the ego a little bit. But you know what? Ideas are coming out of left field all the time. Technology is developing. And who knows what, what next, the next project's going to be and, and what you're going to move on to. So, I mean, you may very well, you may very well build something that I, I, I wish you all the success in the world. But at the same time, let's, worst case scenario, you will still have something valuable and you may be able to use it in some way. You know, you'll build something that has some features that some companies want. And then you can take that... And, maybe you have the right concept or maybe it just maybe it needs to be inserted into another type of package you know or it needs to focus on something else but you will have built something valuable and so no i think that's a very that's a that's really great advice to the listeners out there who are who are um, you know who are interested in entrepreneurship is um, or really anything in life okay i mean don't I, I created a rule for myself a while back and it was don't let fear ever hold you back I can't, I can't say that I've followed that strictly. <laughs> I mean, who among us can? But every time I, when I try to think, you know, what is holding me back from doing something? And I, I think through different motivations, maybe emotions, and I, I really analyze it. And if, if, if ultimately I come down, the only reason is just fear. I just 
just man up and just do it anyway. Because there, fear is not a good reason not to do anything, but what fear should do is cause you to think about it analytically, like you're talking about. Is think about think about the worst case scenario. You're fearful, okay. Think about what is the worst case scenario, what is the mid case scenario, what is the optimistic scenario. And you come to see the worst case scenario is actually not bad. You will survive. You know, you will be fine. Why not do it then? I mean, how could how could things how could things you know be so bad that you wouldn't at least take that risk? And then and I always think of it, you know, we we have only so much time on this earth. We don't really in geological time uh, and even in human society terms, we don't really live that long, uh, and we always tend to, uh, you know, the time flies by so quickly. When you find yourself a little bit older and you look back, you think, you know, what did I do in those years? You know, what was I working towards? What difference have I made in the world? What, you know, and then you start to think, well, what will your legacy be? You know, I mean, you really only have so many years. You should make the very best use you have of the of the time you have. You never, you never want to look back and say, "God, God I wish I had done that." Because I've met too many people who have said things like that. Um, I've also met people who are very happy with all the choices they made. You know, and I, I admire them greatly for that. But what you don't want, you don't want to be someone who's much older than you are now, sitting back and saying, "I have made myself okay with the choices I made." even though deep down I wish I had taken this risk. I wish that I had built something really original, you know? So you, 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 you have to, you just have to take that leap. Let's explore that, that concept of going back in time and giving yourself some advice. If you were able to go back to, uh, to yourself as you graduated with your undergrad degree, which was in, in business, I believe. In, yep. It was, uh, yeah, business and economics. Yep. Uh -huh. If you were able to go back in time and give yourself some advice, what would that advice be? I think it would be, uh, I think it would be take more risks. Um, and learn more from everyone and everything around you. What do you think stops people from, from taking risks when they, when they graduate? A lot of people end up going straight into employment, which is considered a low-risk uh, endeavour at that point um, compared to entrepreneurship. But then, as we're seeing right now with the oil price drop, you know, it's it's not necessarily low-risk. The oil price drops, a lot of people have lost their jobs, and uh, and that's a hundred percent of their income. Um, that's true. I mean, you know, everything has a risk. I mean, I think that uh, uh, where, uh, where our generation at least sees the, the career path is we've seen incredible change in our lifetimes. When we were children, we thought that the right thing to do was go to college, get a good job, make a good living, start a family, be able to support them well, and so forth. Um, and, and we believed in, you know, a, a long-term employment with the same company. Uh, that's what we saw our parents do in some sense. I mean, if it wasn't my parents uh, exactly, it was, you know, friends of my parents, or it was my friend's parents. You know, it was just, it's, it's what you believed. 
Okay, and we all know that that's that's changed. the The contract between you know company and employer has changed greatly, um, and now you know it, it has been it, it has become something that is ultimately in the vein of you know uh, what can the employer uh, you're an employee what can the employer do for me what can I do for them It's a quid pro quo. It's not it's not okay. I will give you thirty years of my life and you give me um, you know. Uh, a good career, good income, some training, you know, opportunity for advancement, and you know, a long pension until you know I, I pass away. You know, I, I I know people who have that, but that is so it is increasingly rare every day. Um, but we have to change the model of how we think about uh, you know, employment and, and education. Um, and I think you know what holds people back is the old mindset that they grew up with. They saw this with their own eyes, but the world has changed so much, even in the last 20 years, that we can't rely on these, uh, you know, on, on these old, you know, adages and ways of doing things. Yeah, you just have a look at, at Elance and Upwork and platforms like that where people are able to, to freelance. Yeah. yeah. Um, for short-term projects from a multitude of clients and distribute their risk amongst those clients and exactly I mean it's a, it, you have a, the whole freelance economy you know you have um, distributed uh, distributed labor you have uh, experts who can ply their trade anywhere in the world uh, simply because they have a good internet connection and the ability to to advertise their talents on numerous platforms where uh, employers or companies are looking for someone with their talents um, and you know that's that's not traditional. That's not a traditional career model by any means. But it may work very well for them. It may work very well for millions of people. All right. Well, let's let's shift gears back to energy funders for a moment. Sure. Um, we we both run businesses with our brothers, and, and I think this is a, a tremendous competitive advantage because of the trust that's already there. Totally agree between us. But it's also there's a significant risk that we're we're both taking in terms of that relationship and and i know matt and i this is my brother uh had a lot of discussions before we we went into business together just to to make sure the priorities were in the right place i.e the relationship comes before before business and uh i guess i wanted to to see if you uh, it's michael it's michael uh uh-huh yeah michael rackison did you did you and michael have discussions before you you started energy funders on on what was important to you and, in, and what would you do in certain situations where, where conflict might arise, that kind of thing? Well, you know, um, we, we spent a lot of our lives together um, since, we're, since we're twins, we're fraternal twins. Um, and uh, we always got along pretty well. I mean, when we were younger, you know, we'd fight and we'd you know, argue. But, you know, as we grew older, I think we, we saw eye to eye a lot more. We have a lot of similar interests and a lot of ways of, of looking at things. And I think we, we also respect each other's complementary strengths. I know he's good at certain things and he knows I'm good at certain things and we will defer to the other in those instances. And, and it's without question. Um, so we didn't really have that discussion in the beginning, but I think we both have an understanding that if this business ever somehow affected our relationship as brothers, then we would, uh, you know, we'd, we'd have to do something about that. But it actually hasn't, um, and I and I never really thought it would. You know, there is always that risk. You're right. You know, when you go into business with friends and family, you don't know what could happen. 
But I think ultimately it turns uh, on on the person, the personalities of each person, you know, and, and what are you willing to to sacrifice? And, but also, why should why should you have to sacrifice, um, you know, those those long term relationships for for business? You know, you can have you can have you can have it both ways. You can have a good business working relationship, and you have a good you know family relationship or friend relationship. You know. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, I think you know, if if, if the business ever did affect uh, the relationship between us, I, I you know, we we'd have to figure something out. But um, it, it hasn't. I think it's actually, uh, I think it's actually made us more trusting of each other. And and, and I and I respect him more as a, uh, you know, as a professional. You know, as you you see your brother as a brother, but then when you really when you build a business with them, you begin to see them as a very competent, knowledgeable professional and someone who really cares about the business about each person in it about achieving uh, a greater goal you know than yourself you know there's no I never question you know is there is this just I never question is this is this in purely just in someone's self-interest we're all we're all we try to be as free of ego as possible we're all in it for the company well that's the that's the wonderful thing about it if, if you're all successful he's successful and then together as as brothers you're you're both contributing to each other's success and absolutely that's, yes that's one of the wonderful things yes. about it and and for me it's definitely one of the, the motivating factors when things get tough you know i think of think of my brother and his family and that I want to do this for them and I want to make this work for them as much as me. Uh, and that, that can really carry you through some of those difficult, difficult periods when, uh, when you might be second-guessing the business model or, or having those moments of doubt that we all, we all have. So. It, it allows you to be... Um, that's, yeah, that's, that's a really good way of putting it. It allows you to, to be committed to something much greater than yourself or your own self-interest, which is a very powerful concept. And then at that point, you can be you know, a conduit for the growth of the company, the voice of the company, the development of something, something good... You know, and, and, and once you remove your, your, your ego and even your id from it and you become, you know, purely invested in a good outcome, that's when, you know, magical things can happen. So you talked about uh, purpose there. We exchanged a, a few emails during the week and I, I put you in touch with a, uh, an author I'm a big fan of, Peter Diamandis. Mm -hmm. He talks about uh, identifying your massively transformative purpose. Is, is what he calls it. And that's your driving force. That's what gets you up in the morning. It's what you're dedicating your life to. What would you say your massively transformative purpose would be? I, I hope this doesn't sound cliche, but it is, it is, to, it is to build something enduring that uh, improves the lives of you know, our clients and customers as well as those who invest in the company itself. Um, and, um, and then it's enduring as well. Yeah. You know, and ultimately it would, it would lead to uh, the creation of a lot of jobs. Um, and, and what's great is, is I get to look at the projects that we're funding already and I get to see that we're putting people to work. We're putting people to work in Texas. Uh, we're doing it in, in Kansas. Uh, we're about to do it in Kentucky. Um, and you know, numerous other states will eventually be be you know creating jobs 
uh, everywhere. Uh, when we fund these projects, you know, uh, it requires the labor of, of a lot of individuals. Um, and what's great is uh, it's not just it's not just the the project itself, but um, when you know when the project is successful and it starts producing uh, I- I- any you know amount of oil and gas, then uh, there are permanent jobs created uh, for people who need to go out and 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 maintain uh, those uh, you know that infrastructure, uh, or actually you know wake up every morning and go on site, go on those leases and inspect things, fix things, you know, uh, arrange for, you know, the picking up of, uh, of, of oil uh, and, and manage all of those relationships and those tasks. What I find really, uh, what, I, what I love about what you guys are doing is you're, you're not going in and trying to displace necessarily a, an existing source of investment you're targeting the the projects that are underfunded at this point. So you're not going after the, the massive $100 million type investments at this point. Right. You're going for the the one to 10 million type range. Um, am I right? Is that? Yeah, that's yeah it's uh, to, to, put, to put a little finer point on it, it's about, it's about a quarter million uh, to a few million. Yeah. Uh, the sweet spot so far, as we grow, has been between you know uh, about two hundred thousand and a million. Um, and then these are you know these are projects that um, are great in a low oil price environment. They're utterly fantastic. You're probably in a higher oil price environment. Um, they convey uh, very good returns. Um, the thing is, is that. You know there is a failure of capital markets for uh, for oil and gas projects under uh, you know uh, ten million dollars. Yeah, I mean the big private equity firms aren't interested in that. The uh, most of the sources of capital aren't interested in investing in that kind of thing, and that's where you're really uh, complementing the market. and And that market could be huge. It's a hu- it, it is a huge market. You know, you, as you as you said, you no, know, it doesn't move the needle for private equity. Um, it and it also requires a lot of expertise that banks don't have, mm. um, and the very few banks have that have that level of expertise. And so, what you end up with is you 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 have to raise you have to raise equity for these projects. But there's no good structure to do that really. Um, and in many cases, if there if there's any uh, company set up to 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 fund these projects through equity, you know, um, there are terms. Uh, there are limitations that, uh, that that oil and gas operators don't really like. So we work with oil and gas operators as partners, and we find terms that work for everyone. And we always make sure we negotiate a good deal for the investor because we only win when the investor wins, and that's that's by law, and that's that's the way we structured it uh, in our business model. Uh, but the the market that we operate in is absolutely huge. It's a, estimated to be around two hundred billion dollars. That's the aggregate. Uh, annual uh, production of oil and gas by these small, you know, independent operators. And what you're essentially enabling is uh, people like myself, who I'm a petroleum engineer. I that's that's my expertise, and and when I go to invest in oil and gas, my options right now are pretty much limited to the public markets. So being able to, 
to bury into a project on a fine detail, a drilling project, for example, and assess that on that project on its merits and then invest my own capital, that really excites me because I can employ the expertise that I've gathered over the last 10 plus years. Exactly. And uh, hopefully that will give that, that will then give me a competitive advantage over um, uh, over others in that um, in that space, but but more than that, it, it's a much better investment for me personally than throwing it into the stock market. Sure, you you know, I mean, you're similar to we we have uh, investors from you know all all geographies across the nation, some international. Um, many of them are in the oil and gas field. Some of them are, are very experienced. They're geologists, they're geophysicists, they're reservoir engineers, they're uh, petroleum engineers, uh, they're uh, CEOs of uh, of small companies. Uh, they uh, they come from, other, from many other fields as well, of course. Um, but you know, the one thing they have in common is that they're uh, they're opportunistic in a good way, and they see the opportunity to invest in small oil and gas, especially at this price point. Although any price point would be good, um, but especially at this price point where you can get into a project that has a really low operating and lifting cost, they see that um, as you know a, a way to to garner huge upside. Good, you know, cash flow returns, um, you know, compared to the stock market, where you know you're paying for all that overhead, all those legacy costs, limited upside. Um, it's just, it's just totally different. And the great thing is also that you know, um, an accredited investor can put in as little as five thousand dollars per project. And you have a certain amount of capital to invest. Spread it over several projects, and that way you are creating your own, your own portfolio of of oil and gas projects. So why do you think now is a good time for people to be investing in oil and gas projects? Well, you know, now is a, is, is, is a uh, uh, particularly good time because um, when oil was uh, around 100 or over 100, uh, oil field service companies uh, adjusted their prices accordingly. I mean, they, the demand was so high that you'd have to wait weeks and weeks for a rig. Uh, and in addition to waiting for that, you had to pay sky-high prices. What I'm hearing from a lot of operators now is that prices have come back down to earth. In some cases, you can actually negotiate some contracts that lock in today's much lower oil field service prices, uh, which includes you know, prices for drilling. Um, and, and, and that makes the project more economic overall. Uh, but also, um, you know, Many of these projects can be operated at low uh, lifting and operating costs, where maybe the break-even could be ten or twenty dollars a barrel, um, and so the project will be economically operated, and it could have a very big upside even at today's uh, lower oil prices. And then when oil prices go up, and I haven't, I really have not talked to anybody or read anything that says that in the long term oil prices won't go up. You know, there is a consensus that that. In the long term, oil prices will increase. I've heard numerous targets, so I have no idea where they'll, what target will be hit. Uh, if anybody could accurately predict that, then I'd, they'd I'd be like, a very, very rich man. Be, yes, they would be <laughs> incredibly wealthy. Um, but you know, given given a certain time horizon, we know that oil prices will go up. So there will be that appreciation. But then you operate the low cost uh, oil and gas project. 
um, and it will produce you know can produce very good returns over time and then you also get that upside uh, when oil prices increase and oh and, and also you know energy funders um, we don't you know we don't just buy leases and then seek to develop them uh, we are negotiating for you know turnkey ready projects at prevailing oil prices so we can we can talk to operators and negotiate uh, a project for you know the prevailing uh, uh, you know settlement price of the WTI and that uh, ensures that you know we are, are are creating a very good deal for the investors. We'll also negotiate many many other facets of the deal, of course. But that way, you know, you are not not trying to make a deal at hundred dollar oil. You're saying, okay, well, if oil is at forty nine, then that is the price we're going to use. We'll go use a twelve month, uh, you know. Uh, you know, WTI uh, a trailing average, and maybe we'll take a little uh, a discount to that, and and that's how we'll run our economic model. We should probably point out the differences between your business model at Energy Funders and the business model of a, a traditional broker, where where the broker might be typically is taking a percentage of the size of the deal. As, as a commission, regardless of the success of the investment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that's something that's always bothered me about the financial markets is that they take no downside risk and it's all upside for them. But in, in your case, um, why don't you explain to us how energy funders makes their money? Sure. So I, I, I think, you know, that you're not alone feeling that way. That makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, I mean, I don't begrudge anyone that business model. I understand that they have to eat, they have to make a living that would you know, fund them in order to find these deals or, or to pay the overhead to manage money or sell a particular project. But, you know, there's, it's always made me uncomfortable too because there's a moral hazard associated with that. You know, um, as rational as someone might be, you know, to what extent are they motivated by the fact that they can make money no matter how good or bad the project is or whether it's successful or not? Um, We take the, uh, uh, we only win when the investor wins. You know, our business model is we take a 10% uh, carried interest in the project. And what that means is um, if the project uh, is successful, then we, take 10% of the revenue, the investor gets the other 90%. And if the project wasn't successful, and we know in oil and gas, we know not everything is successful. Now, great, now, now granted, you know, there's a, the success rate is that more projects are successful than not, which is why you should diversify. Um, then you know, we don't earn anything, and, and we would be out our time and money uh, invested. We invest our own money as well. Um, so we're in it with the investors. So what, what, when a deal comes to you, what, uh, what do you guys put it through? What's the process for, uh, for vetting the deal and, and deciding what you're going to present out to, to investors? So that's a great question. We have, uh, at this juncture, we have a three-stage process. Uh, the first is, is uh, intake where the operator comes to us uh, and we receive uh, uh, operator contacts and projects through various means. Uh, one of the biggest is just simply on the website. 
because we've done everything to optimize that and put that in front of the operators. Uh, we get a lot of word of mouth. Uh, we, we get a lot of phone calls and emails. Um, you know, it could be you know, through anything. And then we start the ball rolling. You know, we'll ask a series of questions and we'll start to gather information. Uh, we'll gather as much information as we possibly need. It's usually a huge volume of information. We analyze it and we run it through an economic model. And then if it looks like uh, uh, it is a, you know, it's worth proceeding, then we go to stage two. And stage two is where we have a conference call and really delve into deep due diligence of everything. Uh, we'll use inside experts, outside experts. Uh, that's where a lot of the negotiating will happen too. Because we might, get a, we might be approached with a certain proposition and it just isn't good enough for our investors. We know what our investors will demand. We know what they want. And uh, we need to structure it so it's something that they would be comfortable with. Um, and then at that point, uh, if we elect to proceed from stage two, then stage three is the actual making of the offering, the drafting of the disclosure memorandum, all of the, the various filings that are required, both state and, and at the state and federal level, putting it on the crowdfunding platform and allowing all of the large community of investors to take a look at the project at a wealth of information, as much as they could possibly want, uh, and then make the decision on their own uh, to invest if it's uh, if it's right for their portfolio. So not only on the legal side, but the engineering side, the geoscience, uh, packaging all of that up into a, a format that, that people can make their own decisions on on which of the projects you're presenting they want to. Uh, want to invest in exactly you know i mean it's it, it's run through the it's run through the different uh expertise that, that's required you know in in many in many instances you know a really really deep you know geo science analysis is not necessarily required but maybe there needs to be uh some input from the the production uh, uh engineering side you know um and maybe some other inputs as well um, and then it, and that's put into a package uh, where the investor can review all the information they might possibly want. And we take a lot of questions, too. We have a lot of professionals in the oil and gas industry uh, investing uh, with energy funders, and they ask you know, excellent uh, technical questions, and then we seek to have all of those answered um, so that they uh, can be comfortable with, with their investment decision. I'd like to, uh, to explore your view of the state of the industry so based on your interactions with not only investors, uh, but those looking for investment um, and outside of, of your work at Energy Funders. Is there anything, um, any trends that you're noticing in the industry that you think are generally overlooked? Hmm. I think you know one trend we've identified is that there there was uh, formerly no way for a for an investor to invest at the ground level in these deals, and we've made that available. Um, that was one of our hypotheses, um, and we've we've had it confirmed over and over again. And then and then another trend that we've identified is that is that there truly is a failure of capital markets. That was another. That was another hypothesis, and and we've had uh, a very a very large amount of confirmation in that regard. So uh, those are a couple right there. I think also that 
uh, in, in, broadly speaking, investors are more interested in alternative investments. Uh, and that's uh, probably due to the fact that they've been disappointed with traditional options. Um, we're also in a lower interest rate environment, but even if interest rates were slightly higher, um, you know, America is, is a 2% uh, GDP annualized uh, growth uh, uh, country. And, and that's fine. You know, we're, a, we're a stable, mature uh, uh, country. And that's the way our economy is. We used to have a higher growth rate, and we don't now. Um, and unless you want to risk your money uh, overseas, and, and we've seen what happened with uh, the Chinese stock market, um, and you know what can happen in Russia. Just look at you know Exxon's prop, former project in, in Russia. I mean, it, there's a lot of risk when you put your money overseas. There's nothing wrong with that. It could, should be, could be part of your investment portfolio. Um, but I think I'll, I'll, you know investors want to be able to keep their money in America. Um, where they know there's a good, you know, stable, you know, legal environment and economy, uh, and then and then let it grow through alternative investments. You guys are on on the the cutting edge of of investing in oil and gas, and I'm really interested to to delve into your vision for the future. What do you what do you see coming down the track in in ten or twenty years time? What do you think we're going to be? So I think, I know you and I have talked about this before and about uh, how the great crew change will, will drive the massive advancement of technology uh, in the uh, oil and gas industry. Now, well, the oil and gas industry is, you know, some people don't realize who aren't, aren't in it or have never really had any interaction with it is, is very, very scientific and highly technological now in terms of you know, certain upstream technologies in terms of perhaps some back-end software, but there are huge, huge gaps that have never been addressed through really through uh, internet and software technology before. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the demographics involved in the oil and gas industry. Um, you know, there were times uh, in the industry when when uh, when you know oil prices were perhaps somewhat depressed, and that that influenced career decisions, and so many fewer people were were becoming. Uh, uh, oil and gas professionals. Uh, and then when oil prices started rising again, it became a much more viable career than they started coming in. And so, you know, you have that huge gap that a lot of people know as the great crew change. Um, so I see that as driving uh, a future where um, the oil and gas industry in internet technology and software terms is you know, on par or greater than other industries. Uh, in that it, you know, that those advantages are being you know, fully leveraged, and from at least from a from a more like energy funders uh, standpoint, I see, you know, anyone, any you know, sophisticated investor, uh, whether they're accredited or not, and this is the the laws are are allowing this, um, being able to get onto the device of their choice anywhere in the world and make you know an intelligent decision about what they might want to invest in. They're able to cut out the middleman. They're able to get directly in the deal. Uh, they're able to put their money to good use and take intelligent, calculated risks that have a much greater upside because they're able to get directly into the deal as opposed to having to work with all of these layers of agents and promoters and brokers and so forth. Cutting out the middleman. Exactly. And I, I, and I, th I think that's what the Internet has been doing uh, for quite some time now, and, and we're applying it to a different context. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to 
want to dive into how you you operate uh, personally in in everything that you've been able to achieve um, you know it's you've started several businesses and and you're doing very well for yourself so i'm i'm a student of of personal productivity and i'm always looking for those tools and and tricks and tips that uh that that people are using in their own lives and then looking for what i can i can use in my life i like to start with uh with morning routines do you do you have the same morning routine every day do you it, what does the first hour of your day look like well you know in the the first i mean i i, I wouldn't say i'm i have like a really structured day i kind of do prefer uh each day to be a little a little different um but you know in in the first in the first hour you know i i I wake up. I <laughs> I eat breakfast that usually consists of a well balanced meal. I there's usually a lot of caffeine involved. Um, are we talking? Are we talking muesli or eggs or well, smoothie? Or? Yeah, you know, I've, I I I'm, uh, I practice a gluten free diet uh, mm -hmm. just because uh, I've I'm just I've been found at least clinically to be sensitive to gluten, and I sadly had to cut it out. I mean, I love. I love my gluten, and and I really liked uh, I really liked uh, all the craft beers that were coming down the line. But anyway, so it's you know it's all gluten free. You know, um, I'll use some gluten free uh, gluten free oatmeal. I'll make sure to get a lot of protein in there through you know something like uh, Oikos uh, Triple Zero yogurt. I'll throw in some vegetables and some fresh fruit, um, and uh, you know I'll I'll just get dressed, be on my way. Sometimes I work out in the morning. Uh, other times I, uh, I will work out in the afternoon. Um, but then there are some days where I just want to get a really, really early, early jump on the day. So I'll wake up at uh, four in the morning and, uh, I find I can get a lot done when I do that. You know, is no, no one's up. No one's, no one's around at the time. You're not getting bombarded with emails and phone calls, you know, which is fine, but you know, it, it does have an effect on your productivity. And during those many quiet hours, I can just get a lot done. So I'm thinking about maybe uh, uh, making that a more regular practice. I've, tr I've been trying to do that too. Uh, I've been, uh, if I look back at the first three years of my working career after college, mm -hmm. I'd be lucky to get to work at 8.30 um, every morning during that period. Uh, it's, and I certainly wouldn't have got to university at that time <laughs> back when I was at college. But these days, getting up at, at 5.30 or so, I've, I've found I get so much done in the morning and it, everyone else is asleep. Well, there's less distractions anyway. Absolutely. And you can, uh, you can get so much done. It's fantastic. I, you know, I've never heard... It's good to hear you say that. And it just adds to this the body of evidence that it is, I think, the best productivity tool at our disposal. You know, everyone I've talked to who does that uh, is really excited about how pro about how productive it makes them. Um, there's even a there's even a club of of people who who have experimented with waking up at 4:30 every morning, and they talk about how it, it changed their lives. It's just that you need to go to bed a lot earlier, and so that's a little more difficult. Um, so what's what's key to being able to get up earlier? On a consistent basis, in your mind. Well, you know, for I find for myself, um, I used to, I used to work out very early in the morning. I'd get up at I'd get up at four forty five, and I'd work out at five twenty five in the morning for about an hour and a half um, with some high intensity uh, exercise, uh, and Krav Maga and, and other things. Um, 
but I found that I just I got too tired by the time I was by the time it was noon. So for me, you know, it's getting enough sleep. I really only need about maybe five hours, six hours of sleep at the most. If I actually get exactly four hours of sleep, then it's perfect. Um, but if it's more or less, then then that then that's tough. Um, so that that's really key to me getting up. And then it's just knowing that when I get up at if I'm getting up at four four thirty that I'm going to have all these hours to get things done. And it's just going to be this incredible amount of time where uh, I'm just going to feel so good about how much I got done. Um, I'm very jealous that you only need that much sleep. I'm pretty sure I've worked out that seven and a half is about perfect for me that I can consistently... If you can get that. In order to get good sleep, you've got to be able to go to sleep when you need to go to sleep. And... And what I'm getting at is uh, those moments when you're lying in bed thinking about the, the million things that you've got to do, which is inevitable when you, you run your own business. How do, you, how do you switch off at night? How do you manage that stress? You know, a lot of people have, have actually asked me that. Um, and I just, I just turn my brain off. I allow myself, I give myself permission to not think about anything and just go to sleep. I think you just have to give yourself permission to do that. Um, otherwise, you you know your brain will will stay awake thinking about all the numerous tasks that you didn't record, how you're going to get them done, etc. You just have to let you have to allow yourself to do that. When you're really excited about something, though, you've, the the light globe's just going off. You've got this this well, the, big idea you and write just, it down. Then yeah, you got you okay. have to go record that. You yep. know you have to go. Yes, that I mean that happens. You know, get it I mean, down, get it out of your head. It sounds so like that can... that's happened to you, right? You, uh, you, you have, get no, that spark, <laughs> and all <laughs> yeah. of a sudden you have to do something about it. Yes, every second, not. Yep. I mean, it's sometimes you know, I wouldn't want to wake anybody up when that happened, but you know, yeah, I'll start writing some emails, and I mean, you know, sometimes in the in the in the harsh light of day, maybe that idea wasn't so great, but sometimes it is, and so you you know you just take that risk and you know put it out there. I use Evernote and I've got a, a notebook in Evernote where I just fill those ideas, get, get those ideas off, off my chest and, uh, and down on paper so that um, I don't have to think about them. Evernote, is, Evernote is just fantastic. Uh, I, 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 don't really, I don't really know how to use it properly. I mean, not in the optimal way that some people use it, I mean. Oh, I don't do think you, I do. Do you manage your whole life through Evernote? A lot of it. I mean, my interview plan here is, is uh-huh. on Evernote right now. Um, there are a lot of things. Uh, for example, with the software company, we don't use email. Uh, we use Slack, which is more of a discussion oh, board. Oh, I love Slack. Type. I think a Slack, is a, Slack is an amazing model for, for uh, work, workflows and work communications that just sort of naturally mimics the, mimics the way that humans have a tendency to, to have meetings and discuss discussions around a certain topic. Um, I mean, Evernote's a great example of how a company can start with one concept and then grow to become something greater and greater and greater over time. Because they started with just very simply capturing notes in, and organizing it in a more useful way than the note app on your iPhone. That was essentially, it. And that was it. And it, that the idea that, that everything should just be in the cloud so you don't lose it. Yep. Um, and I mean, it has grown to become something that, 
I mean, can really, if you know how to use it properly, I mean, I've, I've studied a little bit of this, I've read about it, you know, you can implement any kind of system you want on it. It's just, just amazing. But that actually goes to an interesting topic is, I mean, since we're talking about productivity, um, there are so many amazing productivity software tools out there. Now that we all have mobile devices and tablets, um, you can learn to make that an integral part of how you manage your time and how to be a more productive person. The fact is, though, is that some are inferior or superior to others. So you don't want to tie yourself up with a, a software package or an app that either won't make it, either won't continue to be developed for, doesn't have the best ecosystem, or you know, it is somehow less, somehow inferior to other options. So there is that period. I've noticed it. It is. It, it, there's a challenge. This challenging period of procurement, where you're always trying to find the right uh, software package. But once you've settled on it, you're set. And so, for instance, for my team, I don't know how many uh, uh, workflow packages we've evaluated. We evaluated so many of them. Um, and in and then you finally find the right combination of solutions and, and it works out for you. So what are you guys using right so, now? So we use a combination of good old fashioned communications um, that center over a variety of topics. Uh, we have experimented with Slack. Uh, that worked fairly well, but then we got a little bit away from it. Uh, we use Trello to organize various projects and agendas. Uh, we heavily rely on Google Drive to organize um, uh, different uh, organize different projects, uh, keep documents secure. Uh, we're we're obsessed with security um, in 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 all ways. Um, so, for instance, you know, on the banking side, we have uh, we have a Comerica um, a Treasury management system with enterprise level security, multi factor identification. It ensures the highest level of security for, for each individual project, each individual escrow account, uh, where we keep investors' funds. We have um, a high level of security uh, on the site, 256-bit uh, wildcards, um, and we, uh, we make sure that we don't store any, any personal financial information, any sensitive information at all. You know. Um, I don't see how we would get hacked, but we hear in the headlines every day of large companies being hacked. And obviously they have some, I mean, well, I mean, there's nothing obvious necessarily, but you would not be wrong to probably assume that they put a large amount of investment towards IT security, and yet they are hacked. Well, you know, they're hacked because they are, uh, uh, they have repositories of sensitive uh, information. We, we make sure we don't have any of that <laughs> so, so that we don't have anything to worry about. I heard an interview with a, uh, a security advisor who uh, consults with NSAI, CIA. Um, he's a former busted hacker himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and his comment was there's two companies, types of companies in the world, those that have been hacked and those that don't know it yet. So that's... Mm. I think it's a very insightful comment is that everything is going online and the the way you protect yourself is going to evolve over time. But right now, if you're a large oil company, for example, and you keep everything behind your firewall, well, 
a hacker knows if I can just get behind the firewall, I can find anything I want. Right. But if you're keeping your data encrypted on a large cloud, say Amazon Web Services, with a plethora of other industries, let alone other companies, the hacker says, okay, I need to get into uh, Amazon Web Services. Now where do I look? So there's, there's almost this uh, security by obscurity uh, default that occurs when, uh, when you go to the large cloud services. And I think big corporations are starting to, to appreciate that uh, to a certain degree and, and are starting to move towards accepting uh, cloud applications. That's actually a, a, that's a really good articulation of one of the, one of the biggest uh, security features that the cloud affords. You know, I mean, we're also big believers in not only that, but also in just simply ensuring that either you don't have really sensitive information or if you did, that it would be in cold storage somehow and that it needs to be accessed very infrequently. And I mean, you can't be hacked if you're if if something resides on something that is secure, locked up physically, and then is not connected to the internet. <laughs> I can't, I just yep. can't physically happen. You can't beat that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But it doesn't, uh, doesn't work for everything. True. Yeah. Very true. Very true. So, so at this point we're, we're, uh, we're very uh, careful about making sure that we don't store any sensitive information at all to the extent that any sensitive information is ever used. It's through very, very reputable vendors who, um, who have it, you know, only for a fleeting moment and don't store it themselves. So, um, we're, I think we're just, just fortunate that we've been able to, and we're not talking about Snapchat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, no. And I mean, you know, I mean, we, we take, we take in investments and so people provide, you know, in, in some cases they'll provide, you know, their account information for say an ACH or what's also known as an e-check transfer. You know, that goes to goes to a very reputable vendor, USA ePay. They don't store that information. They only use it to process something in the moment. Um, you know, no one can ever see it, you know, to the extent that it can ever be viewed at all. Um, the only things that are stored are like the last three characters, you know. Um, so no one can ever use this information again. Uh, that is, that's, that's just the type of way, that's our, our philosophy about security right now is, is we don't, we don't want to ever make any mistakes with security and, uh, and information. And so by ensuring that that information is never actually stored and doesn't need to be stored to accomplish our, all of our business objectives and serve investors well, we can ensure that there's no, there's no hacking risk. I like that philosophy. It's a, it's a good approach to take. It's a, it's a good approach, actually, that, that Michael uh, Rackison uh, really thought of. as the, He's the chief technology officer. You know, so uh, no, he's he's been very very good for the company. We got to rely on this the strengths of our brothers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I want to be respectful of your time, Philip, and I know the the ladies are, are occupying themselves downstairs, and uh, so we'll finish up with a few rapid fire uh, type questions, something light to sort of finish the the interview on. Okay, sounds and, good. And uh, and if you've got any questions for me, then uh, feel free to the forum back at me sure. after that but uh, the first one would be when you think of the word successful who comes to mind and why hmm you know I mean uh, I see kind of a composite but you know I'm, I'm thinking you know R- Richard Branson some of the top entrepreneurial uh, billionaires I really love the story of the ones like Richard Branson that that saw an opportunity and just went for it they didn't 
They were willing to take the risk, but they also so powerfully believed in the opportunity that it drove them forward towards the action they needed to take. One of the things I love about Branson is he goes into these 50-50 type partnerships in just about all of his businesses where he he's not coming in with the money and saying, I own 90% of this, you're operating it, you own 10%. He, uh, he wants people to have skin in the game, to be considered mm-hmm. equals, and he thinks that's the best approach for, for both parties to, to be motivated and to, uh, to contribute to each other's success. So I think I mean, he's got that figured out. And, 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 you know, the study of entrepreneurship bears that out. You know, partnerships are responsible for the vast majority of, of innovations. It's, you can't really do it all alone. You know, you need your partners. And, uh, and, and history uh, has brought that to bear. Okay, if you were to take six months off to study with somebody dead or alive, who would you pick and what would you study? Wow, that's, a, <laughs> that's quite a question. Um, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is I would like to understand all of the challenges and ways to overcome them when when starting a business Um, because it's such a compelling study it involves everything you know psychology economics law engineering um i don't know the first person who just comes to mind is ben horowitz because i really enjoyed reading his his uh his account of of how he how he grew his companies. Which book was that? Uh, the Hard Thing About Hard Things. I really like that one. Do you, oh, you have it's, that in your It's uh, second in line to be, uh, to be read. Okay, it's, it's one that I read much more recently, and so it just, it's probably just, you know. And he was the founder of uh, Mosaic. Uh, he was he was one of the founders of uh, Netscape. Netscape. Yeah. Uh, one of the brow- early browsers, yeah. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, uh he, uh, he, he also founded some, some other companies. He actually, you know, had to, at one point he was down to, he had, he had, he had to cut, he had to lay off so many people because the company wasn't going to make it unless they massively pivoted. He had to cut all the way down to 35 employees and then build it back up. It was eventually acquired by HP. And uh, the name escapes you right now, but you, you'll read about it in the book. But I mean, the wisdom he has, he has uh, uh, accumulated, it's, it's just amazing. On the topic of books, what is the book that you've gifted the most and why? Hmm. And if you're not in the habit of giving books, what, what is the book that you would likely give? I mean, I've, I've, I've definitely I've given a lot of different books, so I don't know that there's one in particular. It depends on the person, right? Um, I think what I have given a lot, though, are... are uh, uh, Generally, Robert, I like Robert Greene books for the way that they uh, really, really survey uh, all of the <clears throat> all of human history about a particular topic and then break it down into laws. Like, he's you know, the, the 40, forty-eight laws, 48 laws of, of power, power. Yep. thirty-three strategies of war. Um, there are in several several other books as well. Um, I think, yeah, I, that's and then also the, I like the E Myth as well because uh, it. It teaches people that entrepreneurs are not the people who start businesses. The, what, the people who start businesses are 
people who can be entrepreneurs when they need to be, but they can also be managers and they can also be technicians, you know, and they, and they can wear those different hats. You can't just be the innovator. You have to be able to manage and you also have to be able to competently execute so you can train other people to do those jobs. So it, it dispels a lot of, I think, the myths about creating a business. I'll have to check that one out. I haven't I heard of that one. That's a really good one. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'll, I'll get you the, uh, the the full title and, and author name after. Okay, awesome. We'll put that in the in the show notes at crudeconversations.com. Uh, one last uh, rapid fire question: Do you have a favorite documentary or film? Oh man, I'm never. It's always hard for me to answer uh, with favorites because I love diversity and variety so much. What's the last um, one you could think of that you really enjoyed? I. I love documentaries. Um, I really liked uh, High Road Dreams of Sushi. Oh yeah, that's awesome. That is, it was, it was. It, it, I love sushi for one thing. So it's just from a pure foodie standpoint, I liked it. But I was, I just amazed at how this this man took the love of something he liked to do, applied an incredible discipline to it. He dedicated his whole life, his whole life, yeah. to perfecting pretty much sushi rice. On top, being the foundation to, to just about all sushi. Absolutely, I mean it's it's what he, you know, he didn't even he didn't use the, he didn't try to use let's say techniques that didn't belong, um, or uh, do something unnatural. He he discovered that the secret to the best sushi was to apply natural techniques, but get everything right in terms of the timing, you know the exposure to you know water you know how much time should you let the fish set you know you know sit out you know to allow it to develop that flavor profile i mean it, it's just it to see that level of dedication um and then and then the the ultimate you know achievement of that when you have a three-star uh michelin restaurant you know and that's just phenomenal you know it's very inspirational it's very uh it delves into japanese culture a lot i think too where the the japanese mindset of this is what i'm going to do for the rest of my life and i'm going to perfect it and i'm just going to dedicate my life to figuring out the little tiny details that make this perfect and uh, the, the, yeah the mastery mastery. You know, mastery of something that that thing that you want to do i think you know that that since we have been talking about entrepreneurship, I think it has a, has a lot of um, has a lot of parallels to entrepreneurship. Is you decide that you want to do something, because you're making your conscious choice. You know, and I hope I'm not misremembering something here, but I don't recall anyone telling Hiro that he had to dedicate his entire life to sushi. You know, his sons chose to follow in his footsteps because he was just so he was so amazing at it. Um, and, 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 he, and he must have surely, you know, inspired in them the same passion for, uh, uh, for craftsmanship as, as, as he himself had. Um, but, you know, he made the decision to do that. And then he chose to, to master it. And I think that's, what, that's a lot of what entrepreneurship or really achieving any great goal is about. You have to make the dedication to master it. By, by choosing to master something, you have to persevere through all of the obstacles, challenges, and setbacks. And, and never let yourself uh, give up. I try every day <laughs> to, to follow those words. That's what it's all about. Well, Philip, do you, uh, do you have any questions for me? I mean, I have a bunch of questions. Like, uh, 
uh, like, how's it going with the software business? (laughs) (laughs) It's going fantastic, actually. We're uh, we're very close to having having a product ready to demo uh, out there, and um, I'm I'm very excited about the the prospects and and the future. That's great. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, do you do you see uh, a lot of need for the product right now in terms of in terms of how it can help all of uh, your potential oil and gas companies uh, help make their projects more efficient? Absolutely. I mean, we, we were talking about um, Slack before and how that's uh, disrupted the way companies all around the world are, are communicating and how people are collaborating and, uh, and we use it ourselves at, at, our, at the software company, Exigo. But there's another layer that can be added on to what they've already done that is industry specific and that really empowers people in their day-to-day jobs not just to communicate but to access information and that's what i guess we're trying to do with our software product is is build on the success of slack in a in replacing email for the type of communication that isn't private that you want everybody else to know and and really making information uh, accessible to the to the broader organization so everyone's tuned into the heartbeat of what's going on and and information's not lost in people's inboxes so i, I you you and i have just have discussed a, a, about it uh and I, I think it's a fantastic uh, idea um to and essentially when you can when you can put that informational layer on top of everything that's already been done and make it as natural as as speaking you know, or using any other tool at your disposal. I mean, it's just going to be naturally used. It's going to enhance uh, everyone's efficiency and and the you know information technology uh, of the organization. Um, but I'm also interested to know how how did you come up with the idea for crude conversations? And you know, what made you think? You know, I want to have a I want to talk with people doing innovative things in oil and gas, and you know, and 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 share it with. Uh, all of the interested listeners out there. Well, for me, for a start, it gives me an excuse to uh, to contact people like yourself and <laughs> and, uh, and uh, randomly out of the blue say, hey, well, let's go for lunch. And and uh, I've met amazing and inspiring people so far. And and but this is the uh, the fifth interview I've done, so it's very early days, and and uh, couldn't be happier so far with, with how it's gone. But it started. I listen to a lot of podcasts and they're almost all tech industry related. Um, a little bit of fitness related as well, but no one was doing it for oil and gas. Uh, nobody was telling the human stories uh, about the people that provide the energy for the world because that's where we get all of our energy from or the vast majority of it right now anyway. Uh, and that's that's really my my massively transformative purpose after reading a lot of Peter Diamandis stuff in the last six months I gave it a lot of thought and I wasn't consciously aware of this uh, until recently but I've always been involved in in energy and had a passion for energy my undergraduate thesis was in wave energy so it's not always been oil and gas so I think what, what I've put down as my massively transformative purpose is to contribute to energy abundance in the world because that 
if you look at the advancement of humanity, it's tied to the availability of energy. Without energy, we're going to go backwards. And that, that availability and that abundance is not just tied to supply, it's also tied to efficiency, so how much more efficient we can use it. And so this, this podcast really um, helped me address another side of, of that purpose in, in sitting down with the people who are, are making that possible, like yourself. You're providing capital to projects that produce energy that otherwise probably wouldn't get funded. And that, I think, is, is absolutely awesome. Oh, well, thank you. And I, and I think this is a great idea. Um, and I totally agree with you about your thoughts on energy. I mean, it, uh, uh, you know, humanity has discovered ways to amplify uh, the effectiveness of our, or the efficacy of, of our labor, um, of you know, almost anything we do, and that's all through the application of energy. We're so dependent on it today that we would go, we would go backwards, incredibly so, if we couldn't provide for ourselves. Um, of course, we're always developing new technologies. We ultimately want to shift the way that energy is made, um, but it, it's so important that energy always be made. Uh, and you know, for energy funders, for instance, you know, that's the reason our name is Energy Funders is because eventually we will be uh, branching out into funding other types of projects as well. We're not just oil and gas, but oil and gas is a very good place to start. Uh, I think we both agree on. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's finish up with uh, where people can find more information about energy funders and if they're accredited investors, where they can start getting involved and, and reviewing the projects and putting their money in. Absolutely. So I would encourage everyone listening to go to energyfunders.com. That's www.energyfunders.com or type energy funders into any search engine and you'll, you'll get to us. Absolutely. Anyone can sign up. It's free to sign up. Now, due to securities laws at this point, we can only allow accredited investors to invest. Don't worry if you don't know what that means. You don't need to know what that means. Uh, we will guide you through the process. The whole sign up process takes about 20 seconds. Um, and uh, if you're accredited, then, then you could invest as early as today. Um, if you're not accredited, then we're going to be taking advantage of the new of the changes in laws and regulations that will allow you to invest. We're actively in the process of doing that. So go ahead and sign up, and we'll let you know as soon as you're legally able to invest. Uh, we're very excited about allowing you that opportunity. And if you have any questions for us, you know, please email us at info at energyfunders.com, or you can call us at 713 300-9996. I'll, uh, I'll put all those details in the, in the show notes sure, as well, okay. <laughs> Phil, so people don't have to uh, frantically take notes while they're commuting on the way to work right. listening to the show. <laughs> no, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Philip, thanks for joining me on Crude Conversations, and uh, I look forward to, to chatting with you again. Well, thank you so much for having me, Rohan. I, I wish you all the success in the world. My pleasure. Hi, guys. Rowan here again. For links to the people, books, movies, etc. that we talked about in this episode, head over to the show's website, crudeconversations.com, and check out the show notes. You can also join our mailing list for access to a bunch of exclusive content. And I'd really like to know what you think of the show, either critical or encouraging. Really, I'd love your feedback. I'd also like to know who you'd like to hear on the show. Uh, the best way to do this is to leave a review at iTunes, or by leaving a comment at crudeconversations.com. Once again, thanks very much for listening and thanks for being part of the conversation. Yeah.